Secondly, the Cabri is certified to hover in a crosswind of greater than 50 knots. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Rotary Wing Show. This is episode 40. I've just come back. Uh, yesterday, we were up at the Calandra Air Museum, and I think I've mentioned it on a previous episode where we've been up there, and that's actually where I got to catch up with uh, Jerry Grayson when he was there doing a book signing for his book, uh, Rescue Pilot. So we went up there with the kids again and had a, another chance to have a look through, and it, it just always amazes me when you see a collection of aircraft like that, just you know how clever these aircraft engineers are, that uh, they can put all these bits and pieces together and then actually get it airborne, just the amazing range of different types they have up there. But I actually found a new helicopter that I've never seen before. Now, it's just a, a photo, and it's not there in the flesh, but it's a Sikorsky H37, and pretending, or depending on the pronunciation, it's either going to be Mojave or, or Mojave, so the H37. So this thing is a, a cargo helicopter that was built in the 1950s, and Wikipedia says that there was 154 of them built, and four were sent to Vietnam in 1963, and that's where this photo was taken. And they were used to help with uh, different aircraft recovery. And this design it had a like clamshell doors at the front that would sort of open up. And then it almost looks like a, a cargo airplane, which has had the, the wings chopped off outside of the uh, engine nacelles. So you can imagine up level almost with where you'd normally have your transmission for the, for the uh, rotor, out to the side where these two engine fittings uh, and then the, the oleos or the wheels would come down from there. So just really different design, and the caption for the photo in the museum talked about this particular incident for the photo where the H-37 had been used to deliver a replacement engine and wing for a RAAF caribou to allow for repairs. So it's just a very interesting world out there, all the different helicopter types that have come and gone. While we're there, across the fence, the Westpac-sponsored Surf Life Saving Queensland's BO-105 was working out of their base and conducting some live hoist training. So they got to hang around and watch a, a couple of people go up and down the wire there, which is you know pretty cool. It's been a, a while since I've plugged the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew as voted by show listeners, you guys, over at rotarywingshow.com. So if you haven't been there for a while, if, you haven't, if you're new to the show and haven't downloaded the list, head over to rotarywingshow.com and you can grab that. I'm sitting here next to the computer at the moment that I've got here on the desk, Sweating the Metal by Alex Duncan. So it's about uh, Chinook operations in Afghanistan. So that's the next book on my list to uh, get through and, and check that out. The other really big reason you should head across the website very soon uh, before time runs out is last episode we introduced a, a competition for a hand-drawn custom aviation drawing by Mark Vienendahl. Uh You can check out his work there on the, the page. There's also a link to his Instagram account and does some you know, brilliant uh, hand-drawn uh, graphics. So if you head over to the website, you're looking for episode 39, which is the last one with Pete Gillies, and leave a, a comment at the bottom of the blog post there on what your first helicopter experience was and go into the draw to win uh, that prize um, and we'll basically mail out 
that drawing. You can get it framed up, have it on your wall or on your desk. That's a pretty good prize. But it is running out soon. You've got about another week to go, depending on exactly when this goes to air. So do check out episode 39, the blog post for that, at rotarywingshow.com. And also, obviously, go back through all the old episodes and check out the photos and videos on each of those. And then coming back around to the, the topic of this interview that you're about to hear in, in today's episode is, you know, the, the choice of training machines in the civil market is really starting to heat up now in 2016. For the last couple of decades, if someone had trained through the, the civil side, especially in the Western world, you could almost win a bet. They would have started on either you know, a Bell 47, an R22 or a Hughes a 300 type. Increasingly, though, there is a you know a bit of choice out there now hitting the market for two-seat trainers. So you've got things like the Rotaway, the Farmer, the Cadbury G2, Enstrom's TH180 will be out soon. The Kona K1 is a really interesting machine. And in the Ukraine, there's a, a company there building an AK-1-3. And this thing looks like a bit of a love child between a, a Llama, a Hughes 300, and an Enstrom. But it's, uh, you know, it's quite a good-looking ship. On today's episode, though, we're going to be focusing on the Cabri G2 from one of the type's biggest fans, which is Joey Arena. He's the owner of Texas Rotor Wing Academy. He operates two of the current uh, Cabris in the US, and there's only eight. Uh, so two out of eight is just what he's operating. What we've tried to do is cram a, a type familiarization briefing into the one interview so you can get a, a pretty good idea about what the differences are and what you might expect to get if you, if you get a chance to, to fly one. Before we cut across to Joey, though, I had a, a message on Facebook just in the last couple of days from Zeus in Los Angeles. So Zeus flies one of the, the news uh, helicopters over there. And as well as giving a couple of tips on people we can get for the show, he's also suggested that I rotate the little audio uh, clip of the helicopter that you'll hear in uh, episodes before and after the interview. And basically, you could, people could then have a uh, a bit of a, a feedback or interaction there at the end of the episode, and you could try and guess you know what particular machine that was. So we'll give it a trot for this uh, time, and uh, we'll see how we go. So see if you can pick the the sound, and then we'll be back after we talk to Joey. Joey Reno, thank you very much for being able to join us on the Rotary Wing Show. Thank you for having me. No worries. Now, I'm looking um, forward to this one, you know, as I do to all the interviews. But again, the uh, the Cabri uh, G2, it's popping up, you know, everywhere on, on Facebook and pictures and things like that I see. Uh, so looking forward to diving into that. But, Joe, before we start talking about the, the machine itself, you know, how'd you get into the flying game and, and how'd you end up where you are now? And you want to talk a little bit about uh, where you are in Texas and the type of operations that you guys are doing? Absolutely. Um, I decided to be a helicopter pilot when I was six years old. I grew up on the Texas coast, not far from Galveston, and I remember as a child watching PHI fly the offshore helicopters in on the hour down there, and I knew at that early age that's what I was going to do eventually. And, you know, going down all the wrong roads for all those years as a young person does, I ended up in 2008, I was 27 years old, and I was in construction. I was a general contractor, and I just decided that it was time to go chase my dream. And then right around that time, the housing market fell out. So it was a great time to start flying. It took me approximately six years to get my CFI. I became a CFI last year. And um, 
right around that time with the Cabris coming online in the U.S., it was a perfect adjustment for to start the new flight school. My flight school is called Texas Rotor Wing Academy. It's located in Beaumont, Texas, 90 miles east of Houston. So we're operating here out of the airport, and we currently have two Cabris in our fleet at serial number 98 and 99. And uh, we're doing full-time flight training in those. And uh, we just helped a company out of Dallas import one from Germany. And they've got theirs now flying. And uh, that makes a total of eight here in the States flying as we speak. Definitely. And for eight machines, it's obviously generating lots of photos because uh, mm-hmm. you, you would oh, think Oh, yeah. They're, they're coming be, uh... from everywhere. And most of them are ours. We've actually got the only two colored ones. Very cool. Okay. Yeah, so both of our Cabris are red. All right, Joe, in, terms of, in terms of the, the market then, they're all coming in at the moment as training machines. Is there any private machines? There's two privately purchased that are coming in. They're not here in the U.S. yet, but two private owners have purchased them for their own use. The one that I helped import was a privately owned machine also. So they're using it for flight training to step into the Eurocopters. That's generally what Bruno Gimbel had in mind when he designed the Cabri was there. The only option out there in the training world is obviously the TH-55, Hughes-269, and the Robinson. And some people train in the Enstroms and the Brantleys. But, you know, in, in real world training, there was nothing to compare, you know, moving into the Eurocopters. And that's where Bruno went. He said, I can build the safest, most technically advanced piston helicopter and dominate the training market. And that's been his plan from the very beginning. Everybody always asks Bruno, when will you make a four-seater? When will you make a four-seater? And Bruno, he laughs because he said, I built this to be a trainer. And until I've taken over the world of training, I have no interest in building a four-seater. And uh, that that's where they're holding steady with right now. Now, you've been across to Europe to the factory, is that right? Yes, I was the second U.S. pilot to go be factory trained. I flew with their test pilot, Philippe Cologne, and uh, I visited the factory for a week and spent my time there. I actually got to see my helicopter on the production line and uh, interact with its construction, being able to see all the parts and components going into the paint booth. And I got my flight training there and my certification in the Cabri there with their type rating program. And uh, very close friends with all the people over at Cabri. We talk weekly and uh, either on the phone or through emails. And uh, it's, it's a great family. They, they really are excited about the U.S. market finally coming open. And talk us through the, um, well, I guess, the factory there. So you, know, you walk in. Um, what, do you, what do you see in the factory? How's it sort of set up? It's a wonderful uh, smaller factory. They're opening a larger factory this year. Their current production is about 75 units a year. And what they have is it's at an aerodrome in Le Mille, France, which is just outside of a town called X. It's 20 kilometers north of Airbus. So they're down in Marion, and uh, the, the factory for Gimbal is just 20 kilometers north. And uh, they've got very modern offices of a nice open layout with all of their engineers kind of in the same room and constantly spitballing ideas and everything off of each other. They have a full 145 operation there, so they're constantly servicing their aircraft that come in 
uh, as well as the manufacturing. They currently operate three uh, construction bays, and those three bays are where they build each of the units. Uh, once a helicopter is given a serial number, it's assigned one of those bays, and it stays in that bay all the way through construction, and all of the parts are put on the shelves there, and that's they actually played kind of a joke on me because when I showed up at the factory, they said, are you ready to see your helicopter? And I said, I'm dying to see my helicopter. So I walk in there and it's just a set of empty skids. And they said, that's all we got right now. The It's in paint prep. So they, they got me real good with that joke. Nice. And you, so you said there's about eight in the US and we're recording this sort of early uh, 2016. Absolutely. Do you know uh, world numbers? How, how many frames are, are out there at the total? Okay, um, with the last one that we just imported is serial number one eleven twenty two. I believe that eleven thirty five is in production right now. So I would say that there's a hundred and thirty airframes in flight currently right now. We have more than a hundred and seventy thousand logged flight hours in the fleet, and out of those hours, there's only seven incidences of crashes they were all due to pilot error nothing to do with the airframe and uh of all seven of those all seven helicopters were able to be flown within six months and for less than a hundred thousand euros in complete overhaul all right, well, let's jump into the details. And off, okay. yeah, we, we said before, you know, we're going to try and condense a, a type uh, rating or an endorsement into about 30 minutes. So, okay. and as you said, most folks will have, you know, some familiarity with an R22 or a, a Hughes uh, 300. So, coming from that sort of background, you see a, a Cabri for the first time. Uh, what are the, the biggest differences you pick up? And, and if you want to walk through the sort of design features, the classic French monologue of getting things with style. If you look at a Cabri, your jaw hits the ground because it's absolutely stunning. It's gorgeous. It is the perfect combination of form and function in a machine, especially one as complex as a helicopter. So the first thing you notice is just its stunning good looks. Once you get closer to the aircraft, you really get to see how well they're manufactured. You can look at the carbon fiber composite frame, and you can see where the doors and the tail boom and everything marries together, and it's all seamless. They, they really spent their time in designing it. And uh, you'll notice that the three carbon fiber composite blades, uh, they're, they just look so well-maintained. You get into the rotor head. It's a very simple design. It uses the same elastomeric thrust bearings that the EC120 uses. So it's a very low-maintenance rotor head. Uh, all of the systems have been designed to have staged wear to them. So if you never have a full failure, you'll always start to see a propagating problem prior to a real failure. And that was all engineered into the design of the Cabri. So that's, uh, you know, when you're coming from a Robinson, a Robinson, you know, they're not attractive for the first thing. That doesn't exude confidence when you look at one. Everybody, they look at the rotor mast being up on that tall lighthouse is how we call it. And, uh, you know, it, it makes people uneasy. And then they see the teetering bar concept and, you know, they don't understand it. They're already scared enough of helicopters and not really knowing how to fly them. They see that. And then you look at a, at a Hughes 269, 300 uh, Schweitzer, and uh, those look like conventional helicopters, but it's just, you know, naked. You know, everybody thinks when they think helicopter of the 206, 
an aluminum monocoque system that, you know, everything's housed inside. And it's a good-looking aircraft, but it's very utility. So that's that's one thing that Eurocopter from the very beginning, uh, they've always been very attractive airframes. And now with Airbus continuing that with all their new designs, you can just see that, you know, the, the function is just as important as the form to them. Now we're probably jumping backwards and forwards here, Joey, but sure. does, does Airbus own this company or it's, it's a completely separate entity? What's the no. relationship? Okay. What happened is Bruno Gimbel was a lead engineer at Eurocopter for a lot of years. In 2000, he decided that the training market needed a new aircraft. When he parted ways with Eurocopter, he he was able to take some of their patents and some of their licensing and their manufacturing process and integrate it into what he was doing. And in doing that, it is basically a small EC-120. You can see a lot of the similarities. But then you can see some of the unique attributes of the Cabri that there is nowhere else in any other helicopter, especially in a training helicopter. So you look at, you know, the, this is the first training helicopter that almost all of the components are on condition. There's no time limit to them, no hourly limit. The rotor blades are on condition. The composite frame is on condition. The only thing with time limitation is the main rotor, tail rotor gearbox, and the engine. So, you know, there's there's just such an advancement there, both from an operator and from an owner standpoint, that it's it's unrivaled. There, there's no other helicopter out there that can even touch it. All right, so bring that back to a day-to-day basis then. What's the longest you can fly between inspections and in? you still have like a 25 or 50-hour inspections? Or what's, Correct. Depending yep. depending on the operation and which, uh, you know, because the people, the Kiwis and the Australians fly to different standards than the Canadians and the Americans do. And then you have the, the European system also. So in America, under the FAA system, with what we run as a Part 61 operation, we have to conduct 100-hour inspections. We generally do a 100-hour inspection every other month on our aircraft. Uh, here, that's about how much we're flying right now. My helicopter that I received in June, uh, seven two one Tango X Ray, currently has just under four hundred hours, and will be doing its fourth uh, hundred hour inspection here shortly. Um, in that time, we've only had to replace no major components. It's just basically oil changes and just you know a couple little tweaks and murmurs here and there. So. Uh, you know that so far, no real maintenance cost involved in them. Um, we're probably operating the hottest Cabris in the in the whole world too, being in South Texas. So uh, we regularly see temperatures in the summer in the in the mid to higher nineties Fahrenheit, and uh, I don't think there's another Cabri operator in the world operating at those temperatures for that period of time. So you know we're kind of guinea pigs in that too to see how well they do in in the hot. Uh, fortunately, we're down at sea level, so we don't really have any performance issues down here. All right. Well, you mentioned oil changes. So how about we start with the engine then? Can you talk us through sure. the engine? Is it a, an off-the-shelf model Absol- for something else? Or yeah, It it absolutely is. It is the most produced uh, aircraft engine out there. It's the Lycoming 0360. It has a designation called the J2A model. And what that does is instead of having a dual magneto system, we have a single conventional magneto and an electroplasma electronic ignition. That electroplasma ignition sparks 22,000 sparks per second. 
And uh, when you when you isolate it during your engine startup test, you'll barely see a hundred RPM difference in running sheerly on that versus uh, running on the magneto as well. And uh, it's a fantastic engine. It's it's got millions of at flight hours on that engine. Um, it's still a carbureted issue, though. They did not go with a fuel injected version. They didn't feel the need to. Uh, they didn't want to have people dealing with the hot starts and the priming issues and things like that. So they stayed with the conventional carburetor. But what they did is they added a revolutionary automatic carb heat system. You never have to worry about applying the carb temperature. It does it automatically. It monitors it multiple times a second for the engine power setting, the, atm- the atmospheric relative humidity, and the power demand and the outside air temperature. So it always knows where to keep that mixture perfectly temperature so that the engine can operate at peak efficiency at all times. So it works the same as a normal carby heat then? You're basically pulling air from around the, the engine shroud? And is, mm-hmm. there, is there any controls in the actual cockpit then to manually operate that? Absolutely. If you needed to, it's got, we have one of the greatest things about the Cabri is the EPM, the engine power management monitor. And uh, what you see on the EPM is there's a gauge on the left-hand side and it's the carb heat temperature gauge. And uh, you can have it in either Celsius or Fahrenheit, but it's got a bar on the left side that has four little bricks in it. And the bricks tell you the position of the carb heat. So if you pulled the carb heat full in manually, that would be 100%. So you would see four bricks at that point. 75% you'd see three bricks, 50% you'd see two bricks, and 25% you'd see one brick. So during the startup, you can override the automatic carb heat setting. When you place it on the hot setting, after a few minutes, you'll start to see that you'll get a brick, 25% and a noticeable rise in carb temperature. And then uh, once you see that, we set it back to the cold setting. And on the cold setting, you'll see that eventually the brick will go away and the temperature will start to fall back to whatever the ambient temperature is. Okay, tops. Okay, and let's keep going with the engine then. So additional governor and uh, any sort of mechanical correlation? Yes, it's got a mechanical correlator and an electric governor, and the governor is absolutely so strong in this helicopter. It's got so much power and torque. Due to the Finistrin, you know, the Finistrin doesn't take a lot of power off of the engine. So when you bring the engine back on, say, in a power recovery auto rotation, you you really need to be on your toes because it'll bring a lot of power back quickly. It's controlled the same way that a Robbie is, right on the t- front of the collective is where you engage it, and it's got a great detent on it. So it's got almost 30 degrees of rotation in the throttle that you can get into the detent. So when you're practicing auto rotations, you're very comfortable knowing that you've got the throttle all the way turned off and you're not going to have the engine come back on you. And, uh, you know, it's got a mechanical uh, cam-actuated uh, correlator, just like most standard helicopters do. So combining the two together, it's it's a really good smooth throttle system. And what sort of fuel burn do you plan for? Well, right now we're seeing that in the training environment, mostly pattern work and auto rotations, I'm burning between eight and nine gallons an hour. And when we do cross country and we're running at about 95% power, we burn about 10 and a half gallons on cross country. Okay. Very nice. Uh, it's got right. a 45 gallon fuel tank. So at 10 gallons an hour, you've got four and a half hours of, 
of endurance if you have the weight capability. And our aircraft has a 611 pound useful load. So that's just amazing. So if you do have, you know, two larger students in it or sorry, you know, student instructor, what mm-hmm. what sort of fuel load or endurance do you, would you expect to get out of that then? Well, I'm not a I'm not a small guy. I'm over 200 pounds and I have students that are right around 220 and together the two of us in max cruise we're still burning about 10.5 gallons an hour. Um the great thing about the Cabri that's different from the Schweitzer and different from the Robinson is that we're not looking at manifold gauges. They have an FLI monitor. I'm sorry, the PLI and uh the power management on there is done like like a turbine, we go up to a hundred percent power. So uh, you're never looking and checking what the outside temperature is and how many inches of manifold pressure you can pull. It's all it's all calculated for you. So generally, in in about normal cruise, we're at about seventy five or eighty percent, and that's cruising at about seventy five or eighty knots. And uh, when you're going cross country and you're really trying to get into it, you can pull about 95% and get about 90 to 95 knots out of it. And that's when you're getting your most considerable fuel burn. But uh, staying in our in our medium setting power, you know, staying right around 80%, which is max cruise on it, you're not burning eight and a half, eight point nine 8.9 gallons an hour. Now, the Fenstrom Taro, like, you know, I've never been up close to a machine with them. I tend to sort of think mm-hmm. of maybe like the Dauphine or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, again, inside the cockpit when you're flying, do you notice any particular, does it feel any different to a conventional Taro? Absolutely. The Finistrin is amazing and it is its own machine. Uh, the sound is absolutely incredible when you listen to a Cabri. Most people that hear the Dauphine flying, they know that helicopter before they see it. And it's the same way with the Cabri. The Cabri is also the quietest helicopter in the world at only 78 decibels. And uh, it's absolutely remarkable how quiet it is. But when you're flying the Finistrin, the Finistrin has some quirks to it. It's not a conventional tail rotor. It is basically just a ducted fan. And because of that, it's considerably more tail rotor authority, but you have to use the pedals a lot more. People that are used to flying Robinsons and Schweitzers, they're used to moving the pedals about an inch at a time, two inches maybe. When you're flying in the Cabri, you're using about three quarters of the pedal to keep it in a stationary hover in a no-wind situation. And that takes some getting used to for some students, but it's a very small learning curve. They they soon quickly remember that you're supposed to fly the aircraft and not rely on muscle memory. So, you know, it's it's kind of spongy in the pedals because but once you actually get on it, it you can I can fly sideways at 30 knots using the finistrin to help push you. And it's absolutely incredible the amount of speed that you can get and the ability for that tail to move when you need it to. You just have to not be scared to step on the pedals. If you step on the pedals in like a 206 or a Robinson, you can over torque the airframes because they just so they're they're actually biting through the air like a conventional rotor system. The Finistrin's just blowing air. That's all it does. It's almost like a no-tar system in that re- respect. So uh, they're, they're absolutely remarkable. In forward flight, you can take your feet off the pedals. It's going to stay streamlined. It, it's almost non-existent in forward flight, the Finistrin. It's just back there like a rudder. Okay. Uh, where, where should we go next? Well, let's talk about the main rotor system and the main rotors. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah Absolutely. 
Okay, um, what you're going to notice, it's a uh, semi-articulating soft and plain system just like the EC120 or the Bell 407. They use elastomeric thrust bearings to control the flapping, feathering, and the lead lag of each of the rotor blades in the system. So there's no hinges to grease. There's no nuts and bolts to have to look at constantly. You know, it's it's one part of the of the rotor head and then the elastic Merrick bearings and then the, the rotors. The rotors are 100% composite. They're fiberglass backbone and carbon fiber wrapped. They're a uh, lead. The leading edge is weighted and the outside has a stainless steel leading edge to protect it. So you don't have to worry about delamination or keeping the blade edges painted like on a Robinson. The rotor blades are absolutely remarkable. They, uh, they can take a lot of damage that you can fly in the rain. You don't have to worry about it. You can fly in dusty situations and, uh, they're, they're good forever as long as they're inspected. And, uh, those are inspected at every hundred hour. Obviously they're inspected by the, by the mechanics and, uh, it's got a conventional swash plate. So it uses, you know, just a standard swash plate with a rotating and non-rotating scissor. One of the great stories that I heard while I was at the factory is when they were developing the rotor head. The rotor head has 300 yards of fiberglass webbing wrapped around the end of it to keep it from pulling apart. So it would never have a total failure. What they did in th – this is just funny because they took the rotor system and they put double the weight of each rotor blades. And they hooked them up to the elastomeric bearings. And the nominal rotation speed of the rotor head is 530 RPMs. So they spun the rotor head up to almost 1,600 RPMs and left it there for 48 hours running. When they came back to inspect the rotor head, there was no propagation of any kind of cracks or wear or deformation of any kind. So what do the French guys do? They take a hammer and they crack the rotor head and they spin it up for another 48 hours. So they come back two days later and shook at the rotor head, and no more propagations of those cracks. So the rotor head is absolutely bulletproof, and uh, it's out in the open. It's very easy to see anywhere if there was any kind of cracks or deformation to it, and it's absolutely well thought out and well maintained. That's really interesting, and actually I've got another interview recorded that um, I still got to get up, and, and Pete Gillies there talks about you know, rotor speed and then, you know, number mm -hmm. of crashes caused by low rotor. And in the right. real case, you know, you're saying, look, and once you have an engine failure, there really is no upper RPM speed that you need to worry about. Absolutely. No, we're going to ride the biggest piece to the ground. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's one of the things that you'll also notice about when you're, when you're dealing with the, with the Cabri, the U.S. Army measures auto rotation potential energy in what's called TK criteria. And there's no other helicopter built today that has more rotor inertia in a hover than a Cabri. The only helicopter close is the AS350, which has a very similar rotor head to the Cabri. Uh, the only helicopter that had more rotor inertia was a helicopter called the D-Gen, which was built in France, and it was a tip – it was an aero rotor system that it blew air out of the tips of the rotor blade to spin it around. And it, that rotor ran an air pump that could keep the rotor almost up indefinitely. So uh, that helicopter is like way up on the scale. But nobody's higher than the Cabri. The Cabri's rotational speed is from 600 RPMs down to 450 RPMs. So as long as you stay within that 150 RPM 
threshold, you're not going to get anywhere close to stalling the rotor disc. And that's the safety aspect of the Cabri. When you enter that auto rotation at whatever airspeed you're at, you can watch that that tack will just stay pegged where it's at. It's not going to start running away from you at any point. As a matter of fact, my partner was out demonstrating zero airspeed auto rotations today at a thousand feet over the runway in about a 20 knot headwind and rolling the throttle off and coming down to approximately about 500 feet and then nosing the the aircraft over to perform full down auto rotations. And it's absolutely amazing how you can sit in the Cabri, lower the collective and watch the trim string just fall and come straight down and look at your RPMs, and you're almost having to pull in a little pitch because it's so fast. All right, so let's, again, translate that to something people can sort of picture. Again, okay. talk us through the, a, a typical you know, straight-in uh, auto-rotation to the runway. Great. The way that I was taught to do auto-rotations at the factory is they, they find that the best rate of glide for the Cabri is at 50 knots. Most people that are used to the Robinsons and the Schweitzers, they do a 60-knot auto-rotation. The Cabri performs perfectly at both of those numbers. So, you know, you really don't have to worry about your airspeed so much. Um, so what we do is we line up on the runway. at a pro- We do ours at 500 feet and uh, line up to wherever our spot is going to be. And we smoothly lower the collective and we do it, you know, we enter about 70 knots normally is where we enter. We set up our, our pitch attitude for, you know, between 60 and 50 knots. And uh, you look down and depending, you know, with me at 205 pounds and a 205 pound student, we're going to have to pull a little pitch on a straight in auto because we're so heavy and the rotors have so much inertia. So even in our straight ends, we have to pull about an inch of, of pitch in to keep it in the nominal area. And then, you know, treetop level, we level the helicopter back off and start to perform our flare. In the United States, the FAA requires private and commercial students to do their auto rotations with power recovery. They don't demonstrate full down auto rotations. So at about the treetop level, we start bringing the engine back in just prior to the flare so that we don't have an over torque with that governor come back in because the governor's so strong on it that it will have a tendency to yaw the helicopter to the left when coming back in. So generally about treetop level, we bring the engine back in, do our power recovery and uh, terminate our into about a five to three foot hover. Okay. Well, we haven't covered that. So the blades are obviously uh, French directional rotation. So they're going to be... Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, and that scares a lot of people. It, it made me nervous at first, but when you get to fly... I think it's about the magic numbers, about 150 to 200 hours. You start to notice that all you do is correct the yaw. A helicopter can turn when you enter the auto rotation. It's not about what pedal you push. It's about if the helicopter rolls to the right, you add left pedal. And if it rolls to the left, you add right pedal. And in this particular helicopter, it's going to yaw to the right because it's a counter rotating system and, uh, or a clockwise rotating system. And, uh, so, you know, you just as long as you step on the pedal that you have to to correct it, but I don't I don't see many students having much trouble transitioning from the Robbie or the Schweitzer into it. How do you go for parts availabilities? Because it's, you know, it's, it's a new line. There's not many in, in the States or, you know, other countries. Is it quick to get parts out? Absolutely. The, the longest you're going to wait for parts is four days. That's if it has to come straight from France. 
Um, right now, our friends in Oregon, they're in Newburgh, Oregon. It's Precision Aviation. They are the first U.S. distributor of parts and of aircraft. So they are right now technically the only dealer in the States, and they are the parts distributor. So with that happening, um, they keep – you know, I'd say about 60% of the ready ready needed parts in stock there in Newburgh. And we can have those overnighted to most places in the country. If you need something that's that's a real oddball part, like a spacer for a VOR antenna or something like that, you know, you'll have to get that directly from the factory. And, you know, red label on that, if you want to pay for it, you can have it second day. But uh, normally it's about three to four days shipping. And they drop ship from the factory, so you don't have to wait for it to go to Oregon and then come to you. Okay, it just goes direct. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and so parts availability is not a problem right now. They they worked that out prior to opening the U.S. market. Um, Cabri, the worst thing they could have done is got here and not be able to support the aircraft, and they knew that. That's why they didn't rush into the U.S. market. They started having production models in 2008, so they've been selling them since 2008. They didn't open the market to the U.S. till 2015, and they're still not really jumping full force into it because – they're 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 working on getting the new factory open so that they can meet worldwide demand. At last I heard we had 160 aircraft on order. Okay, in current rate, so you said there was three lines or four lines? Yeah, there's three there's three production lines right now. Okay. Or three production bays, so they have three helicopters in production at all times in various stages. You know, once one's able to come off towards flight flight testing and weight, and weight and balance and stuff like that, then another helicopter moves into its bay. But they're turning about a helicopter every, I'd say, six weeks right now is about what it takes. All right, Joe, you mentioned weight and balance. Now, it looks like there's a huge sort of cargo bay in there as well, mm-hmm. so – how tight is it for weight and balance when you you really need to juggle the sort of fuel and your your placement of of your baggage and things like that? Like, not at all. Um, with the forty five gallon fuel tank, um, you have that same size cargo bay. It's it's the same. It's opposite of the fuel tank, so it's the same size as the forty five gallon fuel tank. It's located behind the PIC seat. And it's actually where eventually the air conditioner will set. They're working on a air conditioner for the Cabri that will match bay and uh, be able to provide air conditioning for hotter climates. And uh, they're actually going to operate that air conditioner off of the missing location where the magneto goes. It's absolutely incredible the way that they're designing this. But I don't think it's going to be available till uh, mid to late 2017. But uh, as far as weight and balance goes, my my helicopter has 611 useful useful load, and um, with two 200 pound people, and you know I can get two and a half hours of endurance in that helicopter and be well within out of ground effect and in ground effect hover in pretty much any situation. Let's jump in the, in the cabin, Joey. So we're sitting in the seat. Take mm-hmm. us through the the cabin layout. The great thing, I mean, it, you're also going to see that it's absolutely gorgeous inside the cabin. It's very roomy. It's it's not as it's not as wide as the Schweitzer, but it's it's wider than an R44 for sure. 
And um, you've got plenty of shoulder room, plenty of headroom, plenty of leg room. They've got adjustable pedals. So if you're a shorter person or somebody 6'1 like me, the pedals are fully adjustable. It's got a, a standard set of controls. So you're not dealing with the teeter bar. The, the instructor's not having to hold his hand up at face level to control the aircraft. So, you know, it's got two dual dual uh, controls that way. They're very comfortable in your hand. Um, it's got a four-way forced trim system on each control. So there's no hydraulics in the Cabri because it's elastomeric. So it's got the force trim. One of the great things about that is even in the FAA's report when they uh, were doing the type rating and certification for the Cabri, the person that was doing the checkout actually wrote in his report that a pilot can tighten the collective friction, use the force trim into a neutral position, remove his hands from the flight controls, and have a reasonable expectation that the flight attitude will not change. That's incredible, and that does truly say how stable the Cabri is. The only thing that, that rivals it is the MD-500. Yeah, because actually I'm used to taking the controls off or briefing students and saying, you know, that thing's going to turn upside down within a couple of seconds. So Right. No. Um, and, you know, that's one of the great things about the Cabri is once you give it to your students and they start making those mistakes, the controls are very, very heavy. They're not super light like on the Robbie. So they're much less apt to get so out of whack because they're actually having to move. It, it's kind of laborious to move those controls because they feel like the controls of a helicopter two or three times its size because you're moving a lot of rotor mass and you're fighting elastomeric bearings to do that. That's why the force trim is so important. Gotcha. We teach students fly with the force trim. So, you know, that's that's one of the great things. So the students, they're loving it. I have I, it took me 13 hours to learn to hover a Schweitzer. And I've got students now that can hover and pick up and set down the helicopter after their first hour of instruction. Completely competent. Too easy. Okay, so control layout then. Uh, so you've got a coolie hat on top of the cyclic then for your force trim. Um, normal yep. sort of intercom trigger. Uh, any other switches on the on the cyclic head? Yep, on the cyclic, it's got the push to talk on the front. Um, it's just a single stage push to talk, so it's not an intercom and a push to talk. It's only radio. Um, right next to the coolie hat, if you have a standard Cabri, you have a, a channel flip flop switch there. But on our Cabri, we have a belly hook. So with our belly hook, that's the electronic release for the hook. And then on our cyclic on the PIC side, when you go below the main handle, we have an emergency release that's a manual release for the hook. Gotcha. So that's how our controls are. On the PI, on the CFI side, though, it's just the coolie hat and the push-to-talk button. That's the only buttons there. On the main collective, the main collective is a masterpiece. It's huge. It fits your hands so well. It's not this little bitty tiny bar like on the Robinsons. It feels like a big piece of, of aluminum, which is what it is. It was CNC cast aluminum. So you've got that. You've got the uh, collective friction, which is also the same size as the throttle. So you just roll your hand back just a little bit. The friction is absolutely lockable. So in forward flight, you can pull in 90% power, lock the collective, and that collective's not going to move anywhere on you. Um, almost the same as operating with a hydraulic helicopter. 
And um, once you move forward of the collective, you'll get to your radio stack, which is normally where most helicopters keep their transponder and their radio. Our helicopter has a GTN 650 Garmin push screen moving map and a regular Garmin 255 radio and a 355 transponder. And then you move up to the gauges. The gimbals take on the glass cockpit screen. A scan in a Robinson or a Schweitzer, if you're going to read the gauges and determine what the temperatures are, can go up to six to seven seconds of not looking outside the aircraft to trying to determine what all of your controls do. The average scan on the gimbal Cabri is less than two seconds because the gimbal Cabri, with each of the gauges, the temperature, the oil pressure, the fuel pressure, RPM management, and power management, when you scan, what when they have an item in the yellow or the red, it actually highlights that area on the screen. So your eye is going to immediately draw to that point. So, you know, when you're doing your scan, you don't actually have to sit there and look at the fuel gauge and go, well, this gauge is two hours worth of fuel and it's halfway and this gauge is an hour of fuel and it's a quarter of the way. So that's an hour and 15 minutes of, you know, with the gimbal, you look at the fuel gauge, it says you've got 12 gallons left and that's an hour and 35 minutes of flight time left. So you can immediately do your scan Caution and warning lights are all off. All of our gauges are in the green operable area. And our fuel burn at current rate is we have an hour and 35 minutes of endurance left. And that's just so easy on both the pilot. It just takes so much workload off of you knowing that you can look at the gauges and get back outside of the aircraft safely. Yeah, some controls on the roof. Um, What were those ones? Yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, that that's like working a real helicopter. When you put your hand up on the roof, you have your mixture control uh, for full rich and, and cutoff. We don't normally adjust our, our fuel mixtures in helicopters because like unlike airplane pilots, I'm scared of heights. And that's why I operate a helicopter, basically. When you put your hand up there, you've also got the rotor brake. And that's also where your plasma and magneto switches are. And if you have a night VFR certified aircraft, that's where your map light and your light gauges are also up there. So those are the controls that are up high. Um, the rotor brake on it is absolutely remarkable. It's uh, an actual disc and uh, brake caliper system. And uh, you can enact it at 150 RPMs and uh, it slows the rotor down considerably. It's not like the Robinson where you have to put a little pressure on, then release it, then add a little pressure. You can, you can hold on that thing till it stops. And uh, so it's neat because you get in there and start up and you're flipping switches on the ceiling, feel like you're in a much larger aircraft. And on startup, is there a, mm-hmm. a direct connection between the engine and the rotor system? Like you, you start the engine, the rotor will start spinning or? Absolutely not. No. Um, the, the, one of the most remarkable things about the Gabri is the engine is only mounted in two points. It hangs on a pivoting system. So what happens is when you get in and you start the engine, the engine pressure comes up. And what it does is it's got a solenoid in there that once you have engine oil pressure, you can turn the solenoid on and it will add engine oil pressure to a hydraulic ram, hydraulic actuated ram that that pushes the engine towards the rear of the aircraft to tighten the belt. So when you start the engine, it's completely disconnected from the rotor system, and you can sit there for two or three minutes getting the engine to idle if you need to. There's no reason to start the engine and then immediately close 
the clutch like on the Robinson or a stage start like with the Schweitzer where you have to add a little power, take it off, add a little power, take it off. This is a – you flip the switch and – Five to six seconds later, the rotor, you start to hear a little, a little shake in the back and then the rotors are synced up and you just continue your startup procedure from that point on. Fantastic. Okay. Is there any other sort of really obvious things we haven't covered so far that uh, is worth pointing out? There are some things that I'd like to cover. When Bruno Gimbel uh, started with the with the Cabri, he said, I want to solve as many of the training mishaps as I can with the Cabri. So we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. Let's start with the landing gear. The landing gear on the Cabri, the skid shoes are carbide steel. They're, they should not wear out. So performing full downs and hover autos should be a breeze in this aircraft and never have to worry about damaging the skids. Once you look at the skids where they're attached to the frame is the most remarkable thing. They're not fixed to the frame. They are squeezed with elastomeric bearings. So on the back of the helicopter, it's only attached in one point, and in the front of the skids, it's two points. So if you grab the top of the fuselage, you can rock the fuselage back and forth about 15 degrees. What this does is it solves two issues. One – On a slope landing in a Robinson, if you do more than a 10-degree slope, you can lose cyclic authority, and you could end up rolling the helicopter over. I have personally done a 35-degree slope in this helicopter. I've done a slope so steep that I couldn't even see the skid shoe under me because the skids actually pivot under the helicopter. So by allowing that to happen, when you do a, the slope landing, it's more it's in two phases. One, you set the skids and then you level the fuselage. So that just it allows you to land on such a more varying terrain and safely and have the controllability of putting the aircraft up and down on it. So let's go back Second, to that one, Joe. So, uh-huh. sure. so you can basically so the skids are flat. Uh, you mm-hmm. can have the airframe rolling on the ground mm-hmm. on the skids left and right. That's what you're saying. So basically, Correct. if you're coming down on a slope, the skids be on the slope, but then the mm-hmm. aircraft frame itself is rolling, is banked on top of the skids. Is that what you're getting at? Correct. So, so, so imagine it like this. The skids come down and they touch, and the left skid is six inches higher than the right skid. So that's about a 30-degree incline right there. But the fuselage is still parallel to the ground. It's still vertical up and down with the rotor disc. You're not in any way coming to the limits of your cyclic authority. Then once you set down and you're, you're firm and you neutralize the rotor disc, the entire airframe will then be parallel to the skids again. So now your airframe's leaning over at 30 degrees, but you still have the cyclic authority to be able to hold that pitch with the rotor disc. You're not getting to the ends of the bump stops and then you're going to have a dynamic rollover. It's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it's crazy because I, I, <clears throat> I don't know what the static rollover angle is, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I assumed, you know, around the it's sort of 30, 40. It's degrees. It's greater than 45 degrees. All right. Cool. Okay. Sorry. That was just an interjection there. Keep going. No problem. So then now you think about this, ground resonance. Ground resonance is formed in two ways. It's an unfazing of the three rotors as they spin around on their axis. Well, the easiest way to get into ground resonance is hitting the ground pretty hard and transferring that movement up to the main rotor. Well, when you do that – sorry, my phone rang. When you have the skids not firmly attached to the airframe – 
those bumps are very hard to transfer to the rotor mast. The rotor mast and transmission aren't, they don't even go down within a foot of the skids. They're about three quarters of the way down the firewall. So the skids don't directly attach to the frame. So getting that jarring moment to go all the way up to the rotors is almost impossible. It would take one heck of a bad powered hover auto to make them unfaze themselves. Obviously, with a bad gust of wind, you can get them out of phase on startup and shutdown. So they do say that at low rotor speeds, you do need to be wary about large control movements until you get to proper rotor RPMs. No worries. So there's two big concerns right there they already did. They, you don't have to worry about slopes. You don't have to worry about ground resonance. Those, those are two things that you've got such a large safety envelope. Then you look at the finisher and tail rotor. Obviously, you're not going to have to worry about tail rotor strikes and people walking into the finisher and back there because it's, it's very safe. It's shrouded. So you'd have to actually get inside of it to get to those rotor blades. But with a finisher and you also notice that you don't have a problem with LTE with main rotor vortex interference because you're not disrupting a conventional rotor system like you will with a tail rotor, the wind that comes off your rotor disc won't get into the finisher because the finisher is a fan. It is not a tail rotor. So you don't have to worry about that those quartering headwinds to lose your tail rotor efficiency. Secondly, the Cabri is certified to hover in a crosswind of greater than 50 knots. That's how strong that finisher can push wind if it has to. And uh, obviously, because it's not a conventional tail rotor, you can't get into vortex ring state because it's not blowing its dirty air back into it. It's just blowing air out of it. So there's nowhere for the wind to re-enter the finisher. So loss of tail rotor effectiveness, it's uh, very hard to get into with the Cabri. So that's one of the ways they solved that. Then obviously the high rotor inertia of the rotor blades for safe auto rotations and uh, the seats, the impact resistant seats. They're rated for two 250 pound people to impact the ground at up to 2200 feet per minute and have a 95% chance of survivability. So the, the Cabri autos at 1,700 feet per minute. So as long as you can feasibly get the collective down safely in an engine failure, if you were to hit the ground on the skids, you have a very high chance of walking away from the accident. Those seats are on crushable rails that the seats will go all the way to the floorboard, and that's why they say you can't have hard objects under the seat in case you hit the ground there. So the seats are absolutely remarkable and uh, one of one of the other safety features. I could completely keep going, but we're uh, running a little long on time now. I'm a little long-winded. No, that's all right. Look, it's uh, pretty much a, a very glowing report there. If uh, like a, I guess two more questions to follow up if um, – Okay. And, and probably we'll keep it to the States then. Uh, so you mentioned okay. Precision. Um, you've got you guys there in Texas. If people want to get out to an airfield and have a look at one, can you – off the top of your head, do you quickly know where the other ones are in the country? Absolutely. I know where they're all at. Right now, Precision has four in Newburgh, Oregon, and they've got another airport uh, in Oregon. It's it's uh, 
slipping my mind right now exactly where they are. But here at Texas Rotor Wing in Beaumont, Texas, we have two Cabris. And then there's the one in Dallas, but it's privately owned. And now our newest flight school is Midwest Helicopters in St. Louis, Missouri. They uh, just received their first Cabri about three weeks ago. And so, and they have a couple more on order. So we're very happy to have them located right in the heart of the U.S. And uh, so those are the places to see them right now. Uh, Midwest Helicopters in St. Louis, us here in South Texas, and uh, the guys up in Oregon. And uh, we, I will be presenting my helicopter at Mod Aero this year, which is an air show in Houston in the middle of March. It's a modern aero, air show trying to attract a younger generation into aviation. So Texas Rotor Wing will be there presenting our Cabri to them. And uh, obviously, we always have a good presence at Heli Expo. So uh, if there's a Cabri there, you'll definitely see me buzzing around uh, helping out with giving everybody the information on them. All right, Joey, if folks want to follow up on this episode and actually come back and have a look at some photos and the operation you guys are running, do you want to give a plug for your website and how they can get Absolutely. in contact with you? Our website is www.texasrotorwingacademy.com, all one word, or you can get us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Academy. And uh, both of those places will get you to our pictures. And uh, I have a contact me on there. My email address is texasrotorwing at outlook.com. And uh, that's the best ways to get in touch with us. Uh, we always love talking about Cabri. We'll answer any questions. We can get you hooked up with any kind of sales or parts or anything that you need through Precision and through the main uh, factory. And uh, I mean, I love this. I live and breathe the Cabri. We put all of our eggs in this basket because we know what the future holds for Cabri and it's going to save lives. And that's why I'm so emphatic about sharing it with everybody. No, it definitely comes across and uh, yeah, you're a very uh, strong advocate for it. So I know there's one here at um, Archfield near me, which is probably about another mm-hmm. hour, hour drive. So yeah, I'm right. now enthused. I'll have to go for a drive and, and, uh, and check it out. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're worth, they're worth. I went all the way to Precision last January to fly theirs uh, prior to Heli Expo and we drove away and told the factory we want four of them. So uh, we signed that contract a month later at Heli Expo. So uh, we're definitely ready to ride this revolution and share it with everybody. Fantastic, Joe. Well, thanks very much for the time and, uh, yeah, for sharing that with everyone and giving us all a bit of an intro to the, uh, to the cabaret. Anytime, anytime. That was Joey Arena from Texas Rotary Academy. You can track down more about his company and about the Cabri G2 at TexasRotorWingAcademy.com. There's a great video on the build process for a Cabri up on YouTube. It's about seven minutes long and shows the factory floor, the, the metalworks, and some of the industrial ovens that actually put the whole frame in. And I'll put that in the show notes on the website along with some photos and any of the links mentioned in this episode. I really do want to keep plugging, though, that uh, drawing competition. It's, it's such a, a good prize. So do go look on episode 39 with uh, Pete Gillies and leave a comment about your first helicopter experience to go in the draw to win your own custom drawing by Mark. And if you're the winner, you'll be able to you know, send in a photo or request a, a drawing of your choice and we'll mail it out. And again, it'll be something you know, quite unique to be able to put on your wall or on your desk. So 
So that's the bottom of episode 39 over on the website. It's still a couple of months off, but starting to ramp up again for World Helicopter Day. So you can get all the information over at worldhelicopterday.com. It's the third Sunday in August. So this year it's going to be the 21st of August. And we're looking for companies to start listing their open days on the website and make this a, a network of global events again on this day. So your event can be as simple as a, a barbecue in the, the hangar to invite you know, some of the local community in to join you. But you can get it listed on the, the world site and drive some publicity back your way. On the site, you'll find some pre-done graphics. There's a kids a colouring-in sheet that you can print out, some demo press releases, and event planning documents you can use too, just to make it super easy. So get involved and help introduce you know, a heap of new people to the, the magic of helicopters with the an event at your place on World Helicopter Day. Thanks to our sponsors for this episode. It's trainmorepilots.com. If you need help with your marketing for your flight school, especially online, you can check out some resources at trainmorepilots.com. We've been plugging away at this end, and we've got quite a, a few episodes coming up, either already recorded, ready to go, or in the process of tying those people down. If you do have suggestions, please do send them through to feedback at rotarywingshow.com. But uh, very quickly coming up, the next couple of ones we've got is a interview with Spider Tracks CEO Dave Blackwell in New Zealand, and we've got another interview with, or a recorded interview with with Pete Gillies, where he goes into a lot of detail about the dangers of low rotor RPM, and talks about a couple of the case studies and examples, and what he's sort of developed over his uh, career in terms of the really important things to stress in the entry to auto rotation. So again, it's just you know fascinating listening to Pete. Uh, talk about that and i can't wait that to get to get that out to you guys as well you've been listening to the rotary wing show the show where we try to bring you the the great stories from around the industry and pass on some of the wisdom and knowledge that is out there to make all of us better operators i've been your host mick cullen have a, a fantastic week talk soon